Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, we are in Mark chapter 6. We left off in verse 14, so that's where we will uh, pick up again. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Robin prayed for these boxes. These uh, will make their way now to a distribution center, and from that distribution center, they will begin um, literally going all over the world to some of the remote, most remote villages of our world uh, with the intention of introducing people ultimately to Jesus Christ. So um, be praying even for these things. Uh, obviously, they come back November 17th. Is that what today is? 18th, whatever it is, uh, so that they can... Uh, make their way somewhere else around in some village via boat or something um, by Christmas. So be praying for these things, okay? Well, as I said, we are in chapter 6 of Mark. If you're not familiar with the book, your Bible, always just go to the front. There's a table of contents, just like any other book that you find. There's a table of contents. You can look there. Nobody here cares that, oh, he doesn't know his Bible, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, we don't do that here. All right, so if you need that, go to that. Uh, but it's back toward the bottom of your, or back of your Bibles there. And we've been spending time looking at the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's been so good, hasn't it? And not, not the sermons, that's not what I'm saying. Just spending time considering Jesus has been so good. As we were singing that song earlier, uh, Jesus, Jesus, something about that name, I was thinking, when I'm somewhere and someone uses Jesus' name as a curse, how grieving it is. It's just sort of like, like fingernails on a blackboard or something. But when you hear somebody speak his name in an affectionate manner, with, like with respect and with endearment, there's just something about it. You're drawn to hit that person that may have said it because there's just something literally about that name. And we've been looking at the work and the ministry of Jesus, which I have been trying to point out has in, in a lot of ways been twofold. He's been ministering to people, trying to communicate to them the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been doing healing, all that kind of stuff to people. But at the same time, he's also ministering to his disciples, helping them to grow, preparing them for when he is going to send them out to do the ministry as well, where it would be their responsibility to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, that there's forgiveness of sin found in one person alone, in Jesus Christ our Savior, because of his work at the cross. And that shift where he specifically began to focus now on his disciples, that took place back in Mark chapter 3, which I, we looked at again last week. But again, Mark chapter three fourteen says, He appointed 12 whom he called apostles so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and that they would have authority over the demons. And I pointed this out again last week. Look, he called them to be with him that he might send them. Catch that. He called them to be with him so that he could send them forth. And as we began chapter 6 last week, that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. It says, and he called those 12, he began to send them. He sent them out two by two, giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And so for those three chapters and for that period of time, months or so of time, they had learned, the disciples had learned, they had observed Jesus. They had processed the things that were going on. They probably had times where they got back and they debriefed and discussed things that were going on. And now it was time for them to put those things into practice. He commissions them. He sends them, as it says there. And as you see, he does so two by two. Now, there's 12 of them. 
So if he sends them out two by two, now there's six different pairs that are making their way out into different parts of the Galilee region. Six different pairs that are going to fan out in different directions to go and to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, as we looked at, to do healing and to deliver people from demons. All that ministry that Jesus was doing with him and 12 other guys trailing behind him, now six of those little groups are going to go out and do that ministry as well. I wondered this week, I wonder what Jesus did during the week or the two weeks or whatever that they went out. Probably went to the beach or something, put his feet up. It's hard for me to imagine that he went to the beach. The text doesn't say what Jesus did during that time, but it's hard for me to imagine he was sitting on a beach with his feet up, taking in the rays. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that he went in a different direction, ministering to different villages. Certainly that's possible. But I think what definitely happened, even if he did that, what definitely happened was he went somewhere and he prayed for those disciples. And as they went out and they ministered in the six different villages and then tomorrow in six more villages and so on, he was praying for each of them as they went forth to minister. That seems reasonable to me. And as they did, needless to say, word began to filter about. People began to say, because it wasn't just happening in one village, but simultaneously six villages. And tomorrow, six more, and six more after that. And maybe they had two in one day. And so 24, 36, you get the idea, began to talk about this group of guys that are speaking about this man, Jesus. And, and let me tell you, the message that they shared, the power that they shared it with, the he, people were healed, they're talking about. I knew a guy, someone says, that was delivered from a demon when these people came into town. Word began to filter about, about these things. Look at verse 14 for a second. Even notable individuals are hearing. It says there that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And so with Jesus having hit so many of those villages in the last couple of years, and now his disciples hitting so many as well, people are beginning to hear, even notable people. Now, I want you to look at this verse for a second here, because I think there's a very important thing about ministry that is included in this verse here. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name became known. Now, remember, the disciples went forth to minister. The disciples were the ones preaching. The disciples were the ones that were praying in such a way that people were being healed of their diseases. The disciples were the ones, two by two, going into villages, proclaiming freedom for those that were ensnared by spirits. That's all pretty impressive. Powerful teaching, prayers for healing, delivering people of the demonic. And notice whose name is known when they're done ministering. It's Jesus' name. You see, because I think we can do ministry in such a way to draw people to ourselves. People do it. Ministers do it. Churches do it. Denominations do it. Lots of folks that go out to minister draw people to themselves instead of pointing people to Jesus Christ. It was the name of Christ that the people knew. And so as each one of us, as we serve the Lord, as we do it as a church, so whether we're serving the Lord formally or whether we're doing it informally, our chief objective should always be to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. It, the ideal thing is if somebody were to say, hey, this group of people came in. Oh, yeah, what church were they from? I don't really know. But they were talking about Jesus. 
Or if a person preached a sermon and it impacted you in a way, and you're telling other people about it, and they say, well, who preached the sermon? You're like, I don't even really remember. He had, like, hair or something. You know, you know some things about him, but you don't really remember much other than the fact that Jesus was preached. And he went forth. We lift up the name of Jesus Christ. As the scripture says in another place, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all are drawn to him. That's powerful and effective preaching. Draw people to Jesus. So important. We see that here. Now you go back to Mark's passage, and reference has been made to King Herod, or Herod, who had become known of, or excuse me, aware of the name and the ministry of Jesus. Herod, particularly as we come toward Christmas, is a somewhat familiar name in the New Testament. You remember that it was Herod who was king during the days of Jesus' birth. Remember that Christmas verse, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I think his name makes it even to some of our like Christmas hymns uh, and things like that. That same Herod, a, a few verses or chapters later, a few verses later, uh, is the one who went to kill all the male children in the village of Bethlehem. Any child two years of age or younger in that village, because word filtered in around you know, a year and a half earlier, so just rounded up to two, that word filtered in that the king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem. And so Herod's solution then, he's a king himself, I don't want anyone rivaling me, well, just kill all of them from a year and a half old, no, just go up to two years. Just kill all the babies, boys that are in the village in that particular day. That was Herod. All right, so the name Herod is found in our scriptures. However, that Herod is not actually the same Herod as the one we have here in Mark 6. Back in Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, that Herod is who has become known as Herod the Great. It's actually the father of the Herod that we have in Mark chapter 6. Herod the Great was an appointee of the Roman Empire. Remember, at that time, the Roman Empire pretty much ruled the world. And the Roman Empire was under the reign of the Caesar. Some of his sub-leaders that were scattered about were called kings. Now, that seems a little peculiar to us because typically a king's in charge. However, the word was used a little bit differently there. Herod was one of those kings that served the area of Judea or the area that we might know today of as Israel. And he ruled the area of Judea for about 35 years, pretty much leading up to the birth of Christ. He died maybe about four years after Jesus was born. And so he began ruling around 37 BC, and he ruled uh, just close to 35 to 40 years there. But as we said, he died about four years after Jesus was born. The Herod that we have here in Mark chapter 6 is Herod the Great's son. And you got to get a different moniker. You can't be the same. You can't have two Herod the Greats, right? That's an easy one, right? right? So this guy, his real name, if you will, is Antipas. And so he goes by the name of Herod the Antipas, uh, but at, or Herod Antipas, I should say. But at times they just call him Herod. And that's what's going on here. Herod the Great was no angel. Herod Antipas, neither was he. All right, the apple there didn't fall too far from the tree. He was a pretty bad dude, as we're going to see in our passage. Let's read verses 14 and following. It says, now King Herod, which Herod? Antipas, very good. Some of you said, I, I, that, that. I didn't know we were quizzing, you know. Um, 
King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent uh, and seized John and bound him and in prison. And then as we saw a little bit later, and ultimately put him to death. Now the context of this passage is to draw, the whole purpose of this passage here is to draw attention to how the name of Jesus has been spreading abroad. How uh, people are hearing about Jesus. Even Herod is hearing about Jesus. That, that's sort of the context of what is going on here. And as an aside, Mark mentions uh, Antipas's guilty conscience because he had murdered John the Baptist. Now, we didn't know John the Baptist had been murdered. Uh, we learn it here. John the Baptist had been murdered months earlier, maybe something like eight months earlier here, but this is sort of the first time that we're discovering, we're being let in on that particular information. And as things are going, all sorts of things now are being said about Jesus. And there's all sorts of form, opinions being formed about him. Isn't that interesting? Even today, all sorts of opinions form about Jesus. There are either even some, there's, there's some few, that say, well, I'm not sure Jesus existed. That's honestly, and not because I'm up here, that's a foolish statement. The vast majority of people in the world, whether they're Christians or not Christians, or they believe the Bible or don't believe the Bible, everyone knows that Jesus lived. But you just say a lie enough, and people start, well, really smart. You know Jesus may not have existed. Do you know that you may? Never mind. All right? And so people will say that. They'll suggest that. But that, there's no reality there. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus has existed uh, in the world and walked the earth and all those kinds of things. Now, with that information, people form these ideas. Who is this Jesus? Well, that question was going around. It goes around the day. Go ask your friends. Unbelieving friends, it'll be fun. They'll love it. All right, but ask them, who do you think Jesus is? And people will begin to throw their ideas out there. All right, and the ideas that were being tossed around back here is some were saying, well, he is a prophet, or maybe he's Elijah. And then, of course, we saw the one that Herod had. Jesus was clearly someone. It was clear he wasn't just some run-of-the-mill guy that lived in that particular community. And people saw, they saw him teach, and they saw that he taught in a way that nobody else taught, even though he didn't have any formal training. There was something different about this way, the way this man taught. They saw that he healed, and that he healed those who clearly everybody else had given up on. I'm sorry, there's no more hope for you. And Jesus steps in in those situations and heals that individual. They saw that he had power and authority over the demonic, and almost every, every time we see him with just a word. Whereas those others that practice exorcism and things like that, they did all these weird things and, and you never even knew if it worked anyway. Jesus, with a word, would heal people. Be quiet, come out of him. And the spirit was quiet and came out of him. And so Jesus was clearly someone, something. People were wondering about this guy. And as I said, the first group there said, well, he, he's an Old Testament prophet. He is the Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Well, Elijah lived some 700 years maybe, or, or so earlier, close to maybe 800 years earlier. And so what's that about? Well, the Jews had this uh, prophecy of the Old Testament, this idea that was going around society that before the Messiah would come, 
that Elijah would serve as his forerunner. And so they had said that about John the Baptist. They had wondered if John the Baptist was the forerunner. And Jesus essentially said, if you're willing to believe it, yes, he is. And you can read that passage on your own and talk about it. But it comes from Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi 4, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of our fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and utterly destroy. And so the ministry of that forerunner of Jesus Christ. Here, some people are saying that's who Jesus is. They're recognizing he's clearly something. They're not willing to go to the place that he's the Messiah. And so they said, well, maybe he's the forerunner that we've been looking toward. Certainly a respectful statement on their part. Others were saying, look, I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's, uh, I don't think he's the Messiah, but maybe he's a prophet. Like those we've read about. The most recent prophet at this time uh, from the Old Testament period was four, four and a half hundred years earlier. And so they're saying, well, you know, he seems a lot like those prophets we read in the Old Testament. And so they threw out that idea. And then the third idea is that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And that's the idea that Herod latches on to. Not necessarily because it was the best idea, not necessarily because it was the most logical idea, but he jumps, he, he latches on to that idea because as we'll see, he has a guilty conscience. You see, Herod is the one who put John to death. Not because John necessarily committed a crime worthy of death, but because of some other issues we'll look at in a moment here. And he, had always, he felt guilty about that. And it stuck with him. Mark gives us the details. Let's read them. Verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized Jesus and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, he being Herod. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a, held a grudge against him, had a grudge against him, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he continued to hear him gladly. Now Herod Antipas, what was his dad's name? Herod the Great. Herod the Great had three sons. Herod Antipas was one of those three sons. A second of those three sons was a guy by the name of Philip. And you see he's mentioned there in verse 17. Now, Philip never went the route of politics, if you will. And so he never served as a king or a governor or a leader of a particular community. He was essentially a businessman, and he was a wealthy citizen in the area of Rome. He was also married, I say that in the past tense, to a woman named Herodias until he wasn't married to a woman named Herodias anymore because Herod Antipas took Herodias. He, he didn't kidnap her. He enticed her and she left and she went away with him. So Herod Antipas is now married, quote unquote, to his brother's wife. Okay, you've probably seen this episode on Jerry Springer. Um, that's what's going on in this particular situation. Herod Antipas is living in an adulterous relationship with his own brother's wife. And speaking truth to power, as John always did, John calls both Herod and Herodias out for this sin. And speaking truth to power, he suffers the consequences for doing so. So does that mean he shouldn't have done so? 
No, sometimes the consequences are the consequence. Sometimes we want to avoid them altogether. But John was called to call them out for their sin, and he suffered the consequences for doing so. He was thrown into prison, and eventually, as we're going to see in a moment here, he was beheaded uh, in, while in that prison. Here's the circumstances, verse 21. It says, Now an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And so immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And everyone else threw up. Uh, verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. That's sad. So John, he spoke out. He spoke out, as I said, against Herod. He spoke out against Herodias. He spoke out against their relationship. Uh, the benefit of that, what he gained from that is he got free stay in a dungeon somewhere, uh, just on the edge of uh, the Dead Sea. There's the dungeon. They've unearthed it. It's, I don't know how to say the name. It's Macarius or something like that. Uh, and there they've unearthed, even today you can go there now, it's in Jordan if you want to make your way over there, uh, which is safe, you can go there, it's nice. Um, no, it is, Jordan's nice, it's very, very nice. We go there, sometimes we don't, but people go to Petra there and all that stuff, it's a lovely place, Jordan's awesome. Um, it's not Ewing or anything, but it's nice, it's nice. Anyhow, there's this palace that is there, and in the palace they have two large banquet halls that they, the archaeologists have on art on earth and then underneath the palace there are a series of these like dungeon prison rooms if you will uh, and John was downstairs while Herod is upstairs it all fits this story perfectly because they say I want John the Baptist all right drive down to the prison it's 20 miles away you know it, it doesn't work for the party go downstairs cut his head off bring it back up here it works for the party so it's a very interesting find that the archaeologists have uh, discovered there but Herod it seems was content to just leave John in prison, right? And it seems as if the verses seems to be indicating that though Herod didn't like the part about, you're in sin, man, he kind of liked to hear John speak. And so from time to time, he seemed intrigued by what John had to say, but not so much about calling out my sin. Much like the New Testament talks about in the last days, we will gather teachers for us that will tickle our ears. They'll say the things that are pleasant for us to hear. Well, it seems like Herod had that going on here. And so he has him locked away there uh, in this dungeon, seemingly content to just keep him there. Herodias, on the other hand, what's, this, what's that little phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Well, she just held this grudge, and she was just looking for this opportunity. How dare this fella call me out for my sin? And she wants John dead, and she just waits, as I said, for the right opportunity to orchestrate the circumstances so that uh, he indeed will be dead. And she comes up with a plan. Her, birth, uh, her husband, quote unquote, I don't even want to like 
dignify that. Uh, this guy that she's living with that should be with her, her brother, whatever, you know, uh, she's going to throw a birthday party for him. And so it says there, verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And this woman here, she knows her quote-unquote husband so well that she manipulates the circumstances to bring her daughter in. Now, oftentimes I read this and I think of like a little girl with like a ribbon, you know, and dancing. And that was such a lovely dance. That's not what's going on here. The, the woman, the daughter, is actually a grown woman. We know her name. Her name is Salome, and she's a married woman herself. So this isn't like some eight-year-old doing a cute little dance, and a guy's like, up to half my kingdom. This is an adult woman, and the dance that she does here would typically be the dance that a prostitute would be brought into. It was a very seductive, enticing dance. And so here you have this situation where Herodias brings in her daughter to entice her uncle with a sexual dance. What is going on here? It's the craziness of this uh, Herodian family here. And Herodias knows what this dance is going to do to her quote-unquote husband. And so she gives it the go-ahead here. She knows that when this is done, he's going to say something to the effect of, I'm going to give you up to half of my kingdom. Ask for whatever it is that you want here. Herod's birthday party would have involved a lot of drinking, a lot of sensuality, uh, a sexually enticing dance, and grand promises made in the spur of the moment. And so Herodias knew she could took advantage of this. And so notice, when her daughter comes out and says, Mom, Herod said I could have anything I want, what should I ask for? Notice her immediate response. And so it's not like she pulls back and she's like, oh my goodness, anything we could ask for? Let me see, what should we ask for? She knows exactly what she's going to ask for. And immediately she responds and she says, the head of John the Baptist. There's no pause, there's no delay. Instantly she knew what she was going to ask for and tell her daughter to ask for. Because is there any doubt that this is what she had planned all along? She knew what her brother-in-law slash husband, how he would respond, what would entice him. And so she orchestrated the whole thing. And again, we have this situation where uh, the little girl, excuse me, the woman, she comes in and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod feared John. We saw that back in verse 20. He respected him, but not as much as he feared his wife and not as much as he feared losing face in front of all of these uh, military leaders. And Herod, he had made an oath, and rather than intervening, we were talking about this uh, around the church here recently, rather than just saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I overspoke. I should have never said that. You can have up to $70, you know, or whatever. Uh, You know, rather than just sort of like, saving face here and saying he spoke out of turn or something like that. He says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And he goes against his conscience and he kills John for his having spoken out against him and his so-called wife. Notice verse 26. It says, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of those and his guests, he did not want to break his word to them. 
And you see a man, here's the king. He, he pretty much seems to have absolute power. He didn't bring this to some court to try uh, the case or anything like that. He seems like he has absolute power, but sin has woven itself around him. And it's ensnared him. And he's now bound by that sin, forcing him, if you will, into iniquity. Look at verse 27. Immediately the king, he sent an executioner. He didn't want to. He was exceedingly sorry about everything. But he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went in and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they buried his body there. Exceedingly sorry to have to kill John. But because he was afraid to lose face with others, that's exactly what he did. You see, John the Baptist had been a voice from God in the life of Herod and Herodias. And Herod and Herodias didn't quite like hearing that voice. And so they sought to silence John's voice. Herod, by putting him in prison and taking him out when he wanted him. And Herodias, ultimately, by having him executed. Now remind ourselves how we got to this particular point. We got to this point because of Mark's comments regarding who Herod was declaring that Jesus was. Remember? So the events about John's beheading are eight months earlier. And so the whole context of this is Mark is telling us everybody heard the name of Jesus. Even Herod did. And both Herod and Herodias thought they could silence John through prison and execution. And yet here we are many months later, and scholars think it was about eight months or so, but we don't know for sure. But many months later, Herod continues to be haunted by John's voice. He thought he could silence his voice of conviction, and yet eight months later, he continues to be haunted by John's voice because the terrible pangs of conscience were stabbing Herod. And not just because of his adulterous relationship with Herodias, but also now because he wrongfully executed John as well. And Herod was learning what the prophet, or excuse me, Proverbs have long ago declared. The Proverbs say this, that the way of the transgressor is hard. And that's what Herod is, lo is learning here. In his case, not necessarily physically hard, but emotionally, spiritually. It's messing, sin is messing with his psyche. And he may have been able to take John's life, but he could not silence John's voice, and thus he continues to suffer with his guilty conscience. Histor historians tell us that he was haunted all the rest of the days of his life, and that ultimately he and Herodias both killed themselves. He was haunted all those days. Historians tell us he talked about John all the rest of his days until he eventually killed himself, because the way of transgressors is hard. Many of us, we have firsthand knowledge of that reality from our past. Some of this room presently know the reality of the painful effects of a guilty conscience. It eats at you. You just can't rest. You can't let your shoulders down. You just physically, you feel your guilt. And from the, eight, the days of Adam and Eve, humanity has always tried to clear its guilty conscience. We all have it. We've all sinned. And humanity always tries to clear its guilty conscience. For Herod and Herodias silenced the voice that was pricking their conscience. History provides us with examples of individuals that mutilate themselves. They whip themselves. They beat themselves, thinking that the physical pain of the self-mutilation will somehow override the pain of 
the guilty conscience. In our day, folks are cutting themselves, thinking that the physical pain will somehow override what's going on inside of the heart. Some people, they try to assuage their guilt by outmeasuring their guilt for the bad they've done with a greater amount of good deeds, hoping that, you know, we can balance the scales, and if I do more good deeds, then I'll start feeling good about myself and things like that. For, for all of history, humanity has tried to deal with this problem of guilt. But whatever one's efforts might be to assuage their guilt, just like Herod, our guilt remains. And no matter what we try, we repeatedly find that nothing works. Sadly, many then turn to other things. And they turn to other things to drown out that conviction. And so not good deeds and stuff like that. Many turn to addictions. Because if I can just get myself high for a period of time, or I can drown my sorrows in drink for a period of time, then I won't feel the pain for that period of time. Many turn to immorality and forms of pleasure that may somehow deaden the pain. Some of us, a lot of Americans, upstanding individuals of our society, we turn to greed and worldliness. If I can get a big enough TV to show me enough entertainment, I won't think about those things while I'm watching that entertainment. And if I can get a nice enough home, it'll be my heaven on earth, and I won't think about the hell that awaits me, and so on and so forth. And we turn to greed, and we turn to worldliness. And like Herod and Herodias, how many people turn to suicide? And to death, and it seems that the number is growing every single year. More and more people are taking their lives so that they might deaden the pain. And the Bible very clearly provides the solution to a guilty conscience. It provides a solution to mental, emotional, physical, and ultimately spiritual anguish that every one of us feels to some degree each, uh, all the time. And the solution is the forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ. No amen on that one? Amen. That's the solution. It is the solution. The Bible is clear that all sin is ultimately sin against God. So even if I wrong you as another individual, even in wronging you and sinning against you, I've sinned against God as well. And many times we can deal with this situation, well, they deserved it anyway, whatever it may be. But God, I still have something between myself and him. All sin is ultimately a sin against God, and thus, only God can heal a violated conscience. And his means of doing that is the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Despite our sin, we can have our consciences cleansed. When we bring our sin, when we bring our failures, and even our measly attempts to appease God, when we bring all of those things to the foot of the cross— our consciences can be clean. This is what it says in the book of Hebrews. It says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Freedom. The burden is lifted. You're in right relationship now with your creator. When we acknowledge our inability to cleanse our own hearts and we ask him to do it for us, when we place our trust in the belief that Jesus' death and his resurrection are sufficient to pay the price that we owe God, and when we accept Jesus' payment for our sin, God promises to cast away our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, the scripture says. 
And sadly, Herod Antipas, he never came to that place. Even Herod Antipas, even having murdered the way he did John the Baptist, having been in this relationship with his, his brother's wife, all these kinds of things, even Herod Antipas could have turned and looked at Christ, figuratively, if you will, and received the gift of cleansing that is in Christ, and God would have cleansed Herod Antipas. And yet he never did. And instead, to silence the voice of his conscience, he killed himself. Listen, very important. None of us here need to leave here without the cleansing of a free conscience. Even us that have been walking with the Lord, a lot of us may be here for a while, we've been walking with the Lord. You may have violated your conscience this week. And there may be just something resonating. Maybe it was a month ago, maybe it was three months ago. And it's just sort of been there. And you're dealing and you're hoping nobody knows about it. Come to Christ, lay it down, if you will, at the cross. The first John chapter one, verse nine, it says, if we confess our sins, it's talking to believers. This isn't your first time ever confessing. It's talking to believers. He says, look, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you. He's faithful and just. He'll look back, if you will, to the work of the cross where sin was paid for and faithfully and because justice was executed there, he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you. There's nothing like walking without the burden of sin on you. If that's something you need to do today, do that today. Don't leave. Talk to somebody. Come up front for prayer. We'll pray with you. Let's go on here. A couple more verses. Verse 30, it says, Now the apostles returned to Jesus. They told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now remember, that information about Herod and John the Baptist and people dying, that happened eight months earlier. The context, again, of all of this is that Jesus' name, his fame, if you will, is being spread about. And one of the reasons why it's being spread about is because six different groups of pairs are spreading about, sharing that message. Now they come back here uh, to one another, and they begin to talk about that particular event. It says in verse 30, they return to Jesus, and they begin to tell him all that they had done and taught. They return from their first preaching mission and they begin relaying to one another and to the Lord the good things that have been done during that mission. Mission. And we don't know, was it a formal debriefing? Everybody sit down, all right, John, you go first. Tell us, you know, what, what did you learn? What did you experience? What was hard? You know, we don't know if it was a formal debriefing or it was just people gathering together that were excited and they were topping one another with the stories of what had happened on their particular trip. One way or another, something prompted it and it led Jesus to respond to this conversation by saying, hey, we should get away for a while. All right, grab your bag, we're all going to get away from a while. And again, we don't know exactly what it was. Maybe their conversation seemed to be developing. This is what they had done and what they had seen, what they had preached. And it seemed to be getting a lot about themselves, maybe. And maybe Jesus said, you know, we need to go away and get back to basics a little. This isn't about you. Maybe it was something like that. Or maybe it was just something Jesus saw in their face. These guys are tired. It's been a long day, a long week, long month, whatever it was that they had been away. Maybe they just need some time to rest. Let me ask you, is it okay if Jesus thought that, that they might just need some time to rest? Not all Christians believe that. Not all people in ministry believe that. 
There are many that think, look, if I was super spiritual, I wouldn't rest and I would just work and work and work until I die. And then I'm 27 years old and I've worked myself to death. But I did it for Jesus here. And some people think that. That's very noble. It's not necessarily right, though. And it certainly isn't something that is wise. Because we are limited human beings, which means we need our rest. We're limited human beings, even in ministry, we need times to be replenished. We need times to be strengthened by their rest. Physically, even our bodies, the Lord instituted a day of rest by design because our bodies need it. We need to stop from time to time and rest. And so Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. There's a rhythm to the Christian life and to Christian ministry. You remember in the book, I think there's a great picture of it, in the book of Exodus, that every time Moses went up onto the mountain to meet with the Lord, there was sort of a cloud at the top of the mountain that representing God's presence, and Moses would kind of disappear into this cloud. He would walk up, and eventually you couldn't see him any longer. And he would meet with the Lord in that particular place. And every time he came down from that mountain, Exodus uh, 34 tells us this, when he came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets, the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. I picture it kind of like a sunburn or something like that which would gradually sort of fade away. And the passage goes on that when Moses would come down from that mountain, he would begin to minister to the people, and little by little, the radiance of God's glory would begin to fade from him. I think that sounds very familiar, because that's the Christian experience. And it's the experience of life, and it's the experience of Christian ministry. Again, to use that phrase earlier, it's the rhythm of, of the Christian life. And what I mean by that is, I mean this, we come into God's presence and we're strengthened for the work that is ahead of us. Then we come down from the mountain, we go forth to minister in that strength. And as we do so, what happens to that strength? It's increasingly depleted, which prompts us to go back up onto the mountain, to get back into the presence of the Lord, to be renewed and refreshed to minister again. It's the rhythm of ministry. It's the, minute, the rhythm of the Christian life. But the problem is, so often, we attempt to minister in our own strength. And I do this, I, I can't tell you how often during the week, as I'm preparing to minister, which I think is part of my ministry, about halfway through the day, I realize, oh, Lord, I haven't even prayed today. I just sort of jumped in and started doing here. And so often, we attempt to minister in our own strength, and we try to fill all the demands of ministry or family or of our job life, uh, and we try and do that in our own strength. And then we begin wondering, why am I snapping at everybody today? Or why am I grumbling and complaining about everything today? Why am I just generally being effect ineffective in my efforts today? And the reason is, is because we are ministering in our own strength, and it is a fading strength, which we acquired, many of us, we acquired last Sunday. And so, I, you know, I've been where you are, I know. Many of us, we come on Sunday, we get supercharged, fill the tank up as high as you can, and we live on those fumes until next Sunday. And our strength is fading, and Fridays are bad. We're yelling at everybody on Fridays here. No patience on the roads. Jesus sees this in his men, and he realizes they need a break. They need a time to recharge their batteries. They need some space, space to get away from the crowds, get away from ministry, 
a place to be replenished. It's why we have our retreats, both for our men, for our women, for our youth. We send our leaders, our elders and others. We send them on retreats and things like that. We need those things. Jesus looked on these men and he listened to their stories of all the work that had been done. And he, <coughs> sorry, and he recognized their weariness. And so in response, he says, let's get away. And this time away is going to be a time to rest physically and a time to rest mentally and a time especially to rest spiritually. I went on a retreat with a group of pastors one time and I figured, oh, no, like a whole bunch of pastors, like they're going to see I'm not very spiritual. And sometimes I I don't like to pray. I just want to kind of walk in the outside or something like that. Don't, don't be worried about me. But I was fearful that it was going to be like super spiritual time and I was not going to measure up. Uh, and so we, we were kind of like, all right, everybody, I'm glad you're here. You know, go, go to sleep or whatever. Uh, I said, what time are we meeting in the morning? I was waiting for like 4 a.m. That's what spiritual people do. I was like, oh, golly, or whatever. And they said, well, we're not going to have a start time in the morning. Just sleep as long as you can and then we'll get together when everyone's awake. I like this retreat. You know, it's really good. And so the first day, you know, we, you know, most people are up at 7.38 or something like that, and we kind of breakfast. And then we, second day we were together, like 9.30, people were waking up. It was crazy uh, or whatever. But we needed it physically. And there's nothing unspiritual about that. We just physically needed our rest, physically, mentally, and especially spiritually. And so the question I'm sure you could write this yourself. Do you regularly take time to rest? Do you take time to rest physically and mentally? Because we need to. And we especially need to take time to rest spiritually. And so do you regularly take breaks from ministering to other people, whether that's your kids, the people you work beside, or formal church ministry of some sorts here, do you regularly take breaks from ministering to others so that Jesus can minister to you? You need to do that. And if your answer is no, then I'll say this, you're setting yourself up for ineffectiveness and you're running the risk of burnout. You're run- and none of us wants to burn out, right? We want to finish well what God has placed before us. God's people need seasons of quiet, alone with him, because it's in those places where we are refreshed and it's in those places where we are restored. And I think this is especially dangerous for any of us that are in sort of formal ministry because it's, we're just too busy. I don't have time to sit with the Lord for 30 minutes. I got to get out there and do the work of the Lord for that 30 minutes. The reality is you'll be far more effective if you take the time. Jesus knows that. His disciples need that. He knows that you and I need that. And so verse 32, they went away. And they went in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. I love this little quote that I came across this week. It said, if we come apart, I mean, come aside, come apart, we won't fall apart. And there's this, again, there's this ebb and flow in ministry in which there's times of service to others, and then it alternates with times of quietness and solitude for ourselves. And the Lord knows that. It's the rhythm of the Christian life. Don't neglect those times of Sabbath rest in your life, not just once a weekend, but regularly. Do we all agree? Amen. 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 Some of you aren't sure. Okay. All right. Father, we thank you.
for uh, this picture, this example. Lord, of your disciples going forth, working hard, doing the ministry, following your lead, your example that you set for them, being used so effectively, and then, Lord, in your grace, you just didn't hire a bunch of slaves to go out and do the work, and then they would die and you get new ones. But Lord, you loved them, you cared for them, you knew what they needed, you brought them aside, that you might fill them up again, that the glory would once more shine upon their faces. And so, Lord, uh, we pray you would uh, take these lessons and embed them into our hearts, Lord, that we would hear these things for ourselves and what they mean for us. We love you. Thank you for your kindness to us. And we pray our prayer in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.